Welcome to Buy, Grow, Sell, the podcast for entrepreneurs looking to acquire, grow, or exit a business, hosted by Simon Bedard. Hey there, it's Simon Bedard here. If you're brand new to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast, then welcome. It's great to have you on this journey. Since its launch, I've interviewed many entrepreneurs that have bought, grown, or sold a business. And in some cases, they've completed all three steps and started all over again. Our goal is to share the stories of business owners that have traveled at least part of this cycle so that we can learn from their experience. Whether it's the dizzying heights of success or the hard lessons learned through adversity, we get to the heart of what drives success and how to apply these lessons on your journey. So join us for the best insights, interviews, and inside information on how to buy, grow, and sell a business straight from the entrepreneurs who've lived and breathed it. I think we can all agree on one thing. The COVID-19 pandemic has changed our lives in so many different ways. But the thing that's really got me interested is the way we have shifted online. Um, This is not just a phenomenon of people working from home and doing Zoom meetings. I mean, the way we purchase products and services and the way we consume information has fundamentally changed forever. And I'm sure you will all agree, right? The horse is bolted. This thing is happening. It's happened really, really quickly, and it's accelerating. So uh, we're never going back, not fully anyway, to the way we used to do things. And so I think for all uh, you business owners out there and entrepreneurs, I'm sure you're asking yourself the question of how do I evolve? How do I get online? How do I capture my little share or my little corner of this digital world and, and actually make something worthwhile out of it? That's why I'm really excited about my next guest. Ronnie Tasia runs a business that sells watches online. Um, He started his first business. He grew it organically, but he's gone on to acquire 15 different businesses and online websites. Now, one of the things I can share with you, I mean, if you're not really a fae with this kind of world, there are so many different ways to make money online, right? And different types of websites, whether they do advertising, there's affiliate programs, there's e-commerce selling actual products, there's digital products, there's educational stuff, there's really such a myriad of different products and services and things you can do online that are proven models for making money. Now, I'm not saying they all make money, but there are established models. And if you know how to do it, you can be very, very successful using this method and without a lot of the hang-ups that you had in the traditional world. Now, Ronnie kindly shares his experience. He talks about how he approached different acquisitions. He talks about the different ways you can actually structure and cut a deal and and how those different structures even impact valuations. Um, He talks to me about how Google and Facebook can make algorithm changes that fundamentally change your business, um, and and how to think about your advertising and splits of revenue and concentration risk and diversification and all these really, really cool stuff that we all need to know so we can run a better business. I'm sure you're going to love this episode. This is Ronnie Teja. Hey, Ronnie, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Simon. I appreciate it, bud. Mate, I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, to chatting. We we had a little technical glitch the first time around, so I'm really uh, grateful to have you back. Well, yes, I can say the nine, the, the nine ninety nine headphones from Winners uh, always help the, the cause of having a of having a proper podcast. <laughs> Man, going top shelf there, top yeah, shelf. Exactly, that's me. <laughs> And I'm really um, excited to chat to you. I was, you know, we, we obviously had a little chat off, uh, you know, prior to the show there, and I just, I just enjoy chatting to you. I think we're, we've got so many things in common, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm really excited to hear your story today. So maybe you, just for the listeners, maybe you could kick off and just give us a little bit of your background and give give people a sense of who you are. Yeah, sure. Uh, so my name is Ronnie Teja. Uh, I run a portfolio of uh, 15 different e-commerce websites. And uh, I'm a first-generation immigrant to Canada. So my family moved to Canada from India back in 2008. And I started an e-com about seven years ago. So since then, so I'm in different niches. I'm in watches. I'm in software. I'm in a bunch of different uh, a bunch of different niches altogether. But those are, you know, we are focused on, on a couple of those things. So we sell in about 66 different countries. Totally, completely remote uh, team of about 40 employees. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, based all around the world. So not not everyone's in the Philippines. We based in uh, we based in uh, South America, North America, uh, the UK, Africa, Europe, and Asia. Wow, that's awesome, man. Um, and and before I get back into the business stuff, so where, whereabouts in India are you from? Uh, so I'm originally from the north, so a place called Punjab, but I used to live in Mumbai and Pune. Ah, cool, cool. Thanks, man. Okay. So tell me, so you're in the in the digital space, but you obviously have got a little bit of a background in this area, right? So you didn't just wake up one day and go, I'm going to buy an e-com business. No, yeah. So I actually used to, believe it or not, work in Australia. So I used to, okay. so my, yeah, I was an account manager. I used to work for an ad agency and my client used to be Target Australia and he used to be uh, Coles. So I actually used to work for the ad agency that did that that worked on them. So I got a big connection to Australia. I used to used to work there for a while. Lived in Melbourne. Uh, that's how that's how we we got to talk about footy and rugby and everything else, which is which is lots and lots of fun. I do miss Australia. Uh, yeah. So my background is in digital marketing. I work for HSBC. I work for Best Buy. Uh, that's where I actually again my experience of uh, e-commerce, a lot of e-commerce, and of course Australia taught me a lot about e-commerce as well. And then, you know, at a certain point of time in my life, I said, look, uh, I can continue working somewhere and, you know, have a nice coasting life or I get to take a take a chance or an, uh, an opportunity on myself to say, OK, you know, would I be interested in uh, growing a business of e-commerce, doing something that I do for other people, but do it for myself instead? Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, a lot of people on our show will will relate to that. Um, so, so you lived in Australia for a while. You're you're building your your career and skills in this digital area. What 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 led you to move to Canada? Uh, I'd say, to, uh, to be honest, I mean, it was a golden ticket. So my my mom was a principal applicant uh, of uh, for for an immigration. We just like put in an immigration application in two thousand and one, two thousand two, around that time. And then in two, uh, I was doing my masters in London in two thousand six, two thousand seven. And then we, you know, the Canadian government called us and they said, look, you, you, you've got, you won the golden ticket. It's a lottery ticket, uh, basically, to, to change your life. And we said, yep, we, we, we moved to Canada. So six months later, uh, we were in Vancouver uh, on May the 14th. I remember the clearest day. And then that's, that's how we ended up, ended up in Canada. My first job when I landed here was I used to pick blueberries on the farm. Wow! Because, yeah, nice. Yeah, yeah. It was pretty fun, man. I hadn't, I hadn't done manual labor ever in my life before, but that was my first job. <laughs> yeah, seriously. I mean, we had. I think we were living in somebody's basement for five hundred dollars a month, and yeah, it's uh, you know every it's it's like it's like a rite of passage. You know, everybody yeah. goes through everybody goes through that, and it was pretty interesting, right? Like it's like you know, get up at five a.m., come in this like big van with like all the all these old people to go pick blueberries. It's kind of kind of kind of like a, an interesting experience. <laughs> That's cool, man. I, so, little little known fact for a lot of people, I was actually born in Canada. So, I, I was, yeah, yeah. So, I was actually born in Sudbury, Ontario. So, um, and and while I don't really remember it, I, we left when I was just a baby. But um, my brother, who's a couple of years older than me, still remembers going out and picking blueberries and blackberries, just like like they just grew everywhere. Yeah. So um, around, certainly around where we were living. So, um, and so blueberry pie was a massive thing. Everyone still talks about it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, don't worry. I mean, I'll eat a blueberry pie or a cherry pie any damn day. But I just tell the time I'm not picking them, I'm okay with it. <laughs> yeah. Okay, now now before I get back, I've got to get back to business here, but yeah. I do have to ask one one final important question for any uh, for any of the Canadians listening to. Have you adopted ice hockey as your new sport? A hundred percent. A hundred percent. That's how I, that, <laughs> so in my Canadian citizenship test, they they, 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 they ask you to, to sing the national anthem. And the way I learned the national anthem was by watching hockey games. Awesome. <laughs> so, yeah, so I learned the Canadian and the American national anthem by watching hockey. Yep. Yeah, cool. Okay, so and who's your team? Uh, the Vancouver Canucks. Yes, beautiful. All right, cool, Leo. So, um, mate, now that I can see you, you truly have become a Canadian. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, so tell us about um, how you how did you get onto this journey of of doing your own business? And you know, did you did you start by building something, or did you go out and acquire something? What what, what did that look like? Well, my first business was actually built uh, from scratch, completely from scratch. We started a watch website. And uh, the, the journey to it is quite interesting. It's interesting in the fact that uh, I, I didn't know anything about sourcing. I didn't know how this whole thing worked. I didn't take a course. I didn't read the Tim, Tim Ferriss for our workweek book or whatever, which most people do. And I said, look, I'm going to start I'm going to start my business. Uh, and I said, I'm going to try and figure this out as we go along. So anyway, hired a designer, uh, got the first round of watches made. 
I was literally I went through Alibaba and I tried to get get molds made and everything else. And you know, to 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 their to the credit of the people that I was dealing with, they actually sent me the watch molds and everything else within the first couple of months. The the issue that I found was about three months in, we were ready to launch those watch brand. We had all the money, we had everything ready to go. And guess what happened? There was somebody in Vancouver who I didn't know who had the same damn logo as as our watches and had launched it on Kickstarter. So it's three months in, and then we look at it and we're like, holy hell, what the hell just happened? And we <laughs> and that was it. It was I was like, holy hell, what happened? So I said, okay, this is a we are, and we're about like fifteen thousand dollars in into this point into the journey. And I'm like, man, this is crazy. Because we had a first batch of production coming out. And then we had to go back to the drawing board and I said, look, I can't really do this, uh, uh, you know, this making from scratch thing. So I basically bought a one-way ticket to Hong Kong, which is about $700 Canadian from Vancouver. And then went and crashed with the mate in, in Hong Kong and they have the world's largest watches and jewelry fair there. So I went and I went to different, you know, different suppliers, met the guy I needed to talk to. And I said, look, I'll tell you what, I'll private label your watches to start. And then from there, we'll just grow further. And luckily, you know, knock on wood, it's grown from there. Wow, that's cool. I, I, I just feel like this whole idea of actually getting on a plane and going and meeting suppliers seems so weird and foreign these days. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's just so much easier to just do that. To be honest, it's like, because I was just trying to source to somebody in Alibaba, I didn't know who this person was, blah, blah, blah. Whereas just like, you know, my if I had just like done the shortcut from day one, which I hope, you know, most of your listeners do, it's just like so much easier, so much better versus like spending all this money, you know, and you're playing, it's very opaque, you're playing blind man's buff. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. Um, so you started this business, and and is that do you still own that business today? Yes, I do. Yes, yes, we yeah, do. So cool. we, we we we've been doing company rollups within within uh, for the watches. So a rollup would essentially be is we are looking at acquiring sites in different geos within the same niche, uh, e-commerce focused or affiliate focused. So for example, if you own a, on a on a you know if you own a website that says you know watches review best watches etc cetera, etc, cetera, we usually would tend to buy those websites. Uh, the way we usually test them out, if they're a good fit for us, is we we try and partner with them as an affiliate from as an affiliate basis. So we were to say, okay, you, you say you're driving you you're driving really good traffic, and at the end of the day, if you're driving good traffic and we, if you're making if you if you're paying out good affiliate commissions to these websites, then the question becomes is in the long run, is it possible for us to actually go and acquire, is it cheaper for us in the next five you know, uh, to acquire this website than pay it commissions for the next five years. And at that yeah. point of time, usually, uh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, just for the uninitiated, like explain, can you explain an affiliate uh, uh, for us and just, just help those who don't understand this sort of area very well? Yeah, sure. So an affiliate would be like, so if you ever go and type in like best phones review on, on Google and then, you know, say you get Android authority and then, you know, they'll they'll review all the best phones in the market, say the Galaxy S21 or you know, the Pixel 6 that's coming out, et cetera, et cetera. And they compare them and then it says, you know, buy on Amazon. And then you click the buy on Amazon button. So anytime you would buy anything on Amazon, the credit of that sale would be to go to Android Authority. And Android Authority is the affiliate site that is driving traffic to Amazon. So for us, we would have websites that we partner with to drive traffic to a website and we give them, you know, payouts for that. Yeah, so you give them, they, so people go to their website they see your watch featured, perhaps compared against others, and if they go through from that website and acquire one of your watches, you pay a sales fee back to the website that's that's hosted it. Correct. Yeah. It's okay. Like a, cool. Yeah, it's like a word of mouth, but except you know, it's kind of like we'll do something Digital. for you, and we just <laughs> yeah, we just expect some payment in return, which is fine, no problems. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, I think I think yeah, I think it's it's that's the way the world these days. So yeah. Yeah, so so the question then becomes for us, which is quite interesting, is in some cases we have very large affiliate websites where we talk to the partner and we say, look, would there be a chance to to acquire your company outright? Number one, or number two is we'll say we'll we'll acquire up to sixty or seventy percent of your company, and then you know you keep the thirty percent, we'll spread the profits. Uh, but but the question uh, but the question is, you you still get to manage the website. You see, you're still in control. Right, which a lot of people still prefer so because it's like some people just want to take the money and walk away. They're like, okay, look, I'll just take my money. I'm out. I'm done. Whereas some business owners say, look, you know what? I don't know what I'm going to do next, but what I would like to do is just continue doing what I'm doing because I kind of enjoy that whole niche. Like sometimes I met like, uh, you know, people in the watch niche. They're so passionate about it, and they, they they look at it and they're like, look, I 
all I want to do is write about watches. All I want to do, is, and I and I get free goodies just for you know writing about watches. And and they they get these high end watches, and they get to write about them. And I said, yeah, continue what you're doing. But what what we be able to do is give you a, a certain amount of a payout. So we actually have a, a profit share agreement, and that you know they they continue running the website, driving traffic to our website, and you know it's mm. it's a win win situation for both people. So so let me ask the question. I think everybody is probably going to be asking is, so if you, you've got a website, they do comparisons, you know, at the moment, you're just another client, um, same as all the, the other clients. But now that you acquire the website, I mean, even if they're still running it, I mean, do you get extra features? Do you get, you know, do, you, do, do your watches go to the top of the list? Is there, you know, is there any kind of additional benefits other than you, you know, obviously keeping some of the profits? Well, the, the, there's two ways of looking at it, right? Number one is, of course, in my nascent uh, and my inexperienced uh, stages, what I did was I tried to push our watches up. But what happens with that is it dilutes the whole process. People people are coming to an affiliate site because it's considered an authority website. When people come into an authority website, they expect an unbiased review of everything. And customers know, you know, customers know when they're being lied to. So to be to be rather honest, I tried it and I failed miserably at it. Because what we're doing is we are diluting that whole process for the customers. And because we're diluting the whole process, it's not a good customer experience. And, you know, uh, it's an automatic thing. You'll start losing affiliate rankings. Loss of affiliate rankings means you're not getting enough traffic. The the, the latter part is you continue doing what you're doing in terms of, uh, in terms of the comparisons, right? What, what we would essentially do, what the next step would be is, we might have a little sliver, be like, you know, if you're looking for quality and afforded, affordable watches, this is another website you might want to check out. You can't push the website. It's not the way to go. You just show it. It's like a show and tell. Don't don't, don't try and, like, influence that whole purchase decision because customers, you know, your, their customers, your customers, your wife, you know, yeah. it's, it's, they're, they're not fools. <laughs> and they you know. know it's, and, yeah, yeah. I, I think that's really interesting I, uh, what you're saying here because, you know, we're going through this this shift to digital at the moment, and and okay, for some people, they're they're really far down the curve already, or up the curve, I should say, in terms of their adoption of this sort of stuff. But there's a lot of businesses that are still early phase and trying to get online and and all of that. And and I I just find this interesting the how we engage with people in the physical world versus digital. And I guess what I want to pose to you as a question is, I mean, I I find people sometimes, for example, hit me up on LinkedIn. And the behavior is really strange because they'll they'll just like, for example, send me a connection request and no comment. It's like, and I liken it to walking up to somebody in a bar and just standing there and staring at them and saying, can I have your phone number? Yeah, <laughs> you know, exactly. Like, or the it's kind of weird. Yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 I, I get it, man. The, I'm sure we both get outreach emails. So like people, we, it's like, who are you? What do you want? And it's like, yeah. it's like in your face. It's like, no, yeah. no. So I'm just interested in your your view on how to market in a digital world because I I get this sense that people there's a bit of a disconnect with the way people think that they think that because it's digital that they can that they be- should behave differently and I guess I'm kind of in this sort of headspace of people are people you should treat them as people and it doesn't matter whether it's virtual or in person so I guess h- how do you approach things with your marketing and is that do you agree with that view i don't know maybe you've got a different view is it you know you how do you go about marketing in a digital well, world there, there's a there's a few there's a there's a couple of things to keep in mind here right so about 10 years ago you only needed about six five or six touch points before a customer came to your website and purchased so what that would what i mean by digital touch point it would be like they just needed to see a brand. They would see a banner ad. They might have seen a YouTube ad. They might have seen a Facebook ad. or And then they'll search you and they'll come and buy from you, right? Today, that same touch point is about between 18 to 22. Mm-hmm. So it means wow. like before, so it's like, so using a bar example, it's like if you keep seeing the same guy at the same bar, like on the, you know, in the same stool, whenever you go there about 16 or 17 times, you probably will probably go up to him and say like, hey, man, you know, can I buy you a beer or are you an alcoholic or something? I don't know. What, I don't know. I don't know what. Yeah, I don't know what nomenclature would that be. But it's like you, you've, you've seen this person long enough to understand, you know, who they are. Whereas if you just see it six or seven times in today's world and then and then they expect and then I send you like a connection request and then you're facing give me a number. It's like, no, 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 no. Excuse me. And especially with with this 
push for privacy and digital rights and everything else. I think that's it's uh, it has to happen in an organic manner, right? When yeah. when when we talk about an organic fashion, it would be, you know, like a slow build up and a, a, you know if you if, if I've visited your website once, you might show me a remarketing ad. What does that ad look like? Will they will you give me an offer? If it's not an offer, would it just be like, hey, you know, thanks for visiting a site, something else like that, right? Whereas, uh, the, the, see, Amazon has its pros and cons, right? But what Amazon has turned a mentality into over the last 10, 15 years is the fact that everything for us is now price and product, right? So it's literally, a you, you go to a website, you, it's literally a price comparison and it's a race to the bottom. And that's why we don't sell on Amazon, for example, right? It's literally you're going to end up diluting your brand no matter what happens. So it's like when you go to a supermarket store, right, and you're trying to buy, say, balsamic vinegar, right? The 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 shitty stuff is about six six to eight dollars, let's say, right? And the good stuff is about let's say hundred dollars. But you know, you'll go through the whole shelf. You'll you know you'll see some people who reach reach to the the lower shelf because that's that's where they are because of. Yeah, I mean it's 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 the supermarket strategy. The the higher the shelf at your eye level, the more that they want to promote that product versus the one at the lower shelf. So Amazon is something similar as well, right? But Amazon gives more credit to that stuff at the lower shelf, the six to eight dollar one, because that's how the algo is based. But if you want something that's quality, right, which is at your eye level, which might be let's say thirteen to fifteen dollars, it's it's moderate. But you can still have that good balsamic vinegar, right? So I think that's 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 the issue in today's world. Is like it's everything is just a race to the bottom. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, and I think deviated. there's a lot of no, not at all. This is cool. Like it's, I, I think we all understand the fact that there's a lot of noise out there, right, on on the internet, and and you know there's a lot of crap that gets sold online. So you know, and I find that's. That's why I'm interested in your story here because you, you're obviously taking a different approach and you're talking about quality and you're talking about, um, you know, obviously a different type of experience, which which, which is, I, I think, what people are after. Yeah. I mean, if anybody starts an e-commerce brand today or even if they are in that journey, I mean, the first book I'd recommend to you is uh, Delivering Happiness by Tony Say, which is, uh, which is about how Zappos built their their, you know, their customer service. Uh, Tony Say famously said, you know, we are a customer service company who just happens to sell shoes. And which is quite interesting because, you know, they 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 have that mentality of serving the customers first. I mean, people used to call Zappos customer service line to order, but not to order pizzas, but they would just be like, hey, can you, yeah, can you send pizzas to this and this other? And Zappos would do it without even asking yeah, right. that. Yeah, and it became, it became such a cult, it became such a cult brand, like in dorm rooms or, anything else that people would try and just ring them just for the sake of it. And they would complete, they would go through with that whole experience. So it's like, wait a second, but that's free marketing. So when you're talking about, you know, people asking for your phone number, right? Versus what Zappos is doing and you testing it out and calling this random number and be like, hey, is it possible to even do this? And then you're like, wait a second, they just did this. And you you probably tell like 50, 100 other people for it. So yeah. Definitely. You know, there's one way of giving your phone number, or asking for your phone number right in your face. The other one's like, hey, have you heard about this? And you're like, holy hell, this is, that's just like a much more organic experience. And then you end up becoming something that's got acquired for like $6 billion. Yeah, wow, yeah. How, how do you delight your customer, right? I mean, I think that's the question we all need to be asking. Yeah, surprise and delight is a big thing. Yeah, uh, for for me personally, it's a hundred and letter of all customers. I mean, I won't write a letter to each and every customer, but you know, we'll pick customers at at random over the uh, over a you know over a quarter, and then I'll be able to I write them hundred letters asking for feedback or something else like that. So that's me personally because I like doing that. I do it for employees as well once a quarter, but you know, it differs from company to company. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So changing tact a little here. It, it, Tell me a little bit about your first acquisition because, I mean, I think there's there's so much um, information out there about starting businesses and how to grow your business and that sort of stuff. But, you know, acquisitions is is, uh, is certainly a very um, solid and well-proven method for growing. So I, I'm interested in how did you approach your first, your first buy? Yeah, so pretty green behind the ears, to be honest, on, on my first purchase, uh, still am. Uh, however, the way, the way I went about it was we were looking to expand into Africa and I said, what is the most developed economy in Africa for e-commerce? And it turned out to be South Africa. 
So I went and I lived in Cape Town for about six months. And I found this, the, yeah, we, we were seeing, we were seeing uh, an uplift in sales in South Africa. And I said, wait, this is a great market to test out and see what's going on. So we so went to Cape Town, lived in Cape Town, met, uh, identified a couple of sites who, who we had partnered with. And I went and worked with the founders of these websites. And they, and they seemed like pretty nice guys. And, you know, over a period of, let's say, a couple of months, became good mates, went out for a couple of beers, and then uh, started talking about acquisition talks. And the... The, the the funny thing is, right? They didn't. They had. They hadn't ever sold these sites before. They for them, they were so passionate about like watches and everything else. They they didn't know, you know, we can sell or I can give up shares for money and stuff. They were they were just focused on writing the sites. They didn't care about anything else. They were just writers, right? And then so th- then came the conversation of saying, look, and they didn't want to give that dream up. So this is an example of what I had told you earlier about, which was. You know, they want. They were so passionate about. It, they they would. They wouldn't want to do anything else in their life. And you know, to their credit, they said, "Look, I'll tell you what. Let's go through a mediator or like an online, uh, uh, you know, marketplace and see what they think is fair value." So we came up with that fair value uh, number, which was, I think, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars or whatever that number was. And they said, "You know, we'll we'll that's fine. We'll give you fifty percent for this much." And then, and I said, "Okay, sure." Off, off, off to the races and they 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 it's still a partnership that's continuing to the day i mean they they still own you know 30 percent of the sites uh they, they still get their they're paid out uh as employees but they also get the profit share at the end of the year and they, and they're happy with that and that you know it's, it's a win-win for both parties it was also finding them a place in the company uh where the baby is being well taken care of and i'm completely hands-off in that whole process like i said i made i made that mistake quite early on uh thankfully about you know promoting my watch brand over over else and not listening to them and you know uh, pulling up my you know I own majority shares card which wasn't of course the right decision in the in the in the short run but in the long run we able to uh, you know the learning that I have from that is something that I can share with you uh, you know upfront and it's, yeah, it's been successful yeah it's been successful because yeah. of that no that's awesome I I have often said to many um, clients business owners. Um, when they're having disagreements with other shareholders. And I said, mate, if it gets to the point where you're in it, having to have a board meeting and vote your shares because you can't discuss things and it's like, well, that's it, let's vote our shares, then you've got bigger problems because it's, you know, you're clearly communications breaking down. So. Yeah, it's my failure. I mean, it was just me. It was just me being like brash, to be honest. Like it was completely, I'll raise my hand and say it's my mistake. Yeah, yeah. And then we learn from them, right? So so to talk to me through, um, so you, you got a price, was it um, – did you was it? Did you pay everything up front? Was there kind of an earnout? Was there a deferrals? Oh, was there anything like that? That that is an interesting question. So it depends on the business owner. Uh, now this particular business owner uh, wanted sixty uh, percent up front. So you can you can always use different strategies. I mean, in some cases people want one hundred percent of the money up front. They said, "Look, I worked hard enough for this. I just want to buy a house. I'm gonna take my cash and I'm gonna move on." Fair enough. Uh, that gives you a lot more room to negotiate. Because if they want 100% of the cash up front, of course, you can, you can see what you, you can play, you can play the range. Uh, whereas if people want deferred payments, in this case, this gentleman had a, he's having a newborn baby on the way and they needed to up, upgrade the place, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera, and they wanted some security in the long run, which, you know, all the power to them. We said, fine, you know, for me, it's basically means means it's less capital intensive. And that works out for both parties. So it says, said, okay, we'll give you thirty or forty percent up front, and then you know, over the next ten years, we'll just keep, we'll just keep paying you. And for that, what a great, I, you know, what we did was for the deferred payments, we actually just took the money that the company is making, the affiliate sites make, and we just use that to defer for deferral payments, right? Yes. So yeah. the affiliate sites have certainly grown, right? So right now, in terms of the de- deferred payments, you know, after we pay the deferred payments, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, we actually making money on top. So for the first two years, say for example, you're not making any money on the deferred payments, but year number three, you actually are getting your returns already coming out. So, yeah, I think that I prefer deferred payments. Honestly, uh, most mo- most business owners who we've acquired from, I'd say six, roughly sixty percent, uh, preferred upfront payments. Right? There's about that thirty percent would would say, okay, you know what, we'll we'll take the deferred payments. It it just depends on the circumstance. And if you feel it, it's just about having that conversation up front. Yeah, sure. Do, do, uh, well, before I get to my next question, so how many businesses or, or sites have you acquired now? We're at a total of 
15, between 15 and 16 wow. right now. Yeah, yep. uh, we started with, one, uh, with two. So, you know, it's just, uh, we started with one, of course, and then it grew to two, and then now it's up to 16. But, you know, uh, the idea is to get to about 2025, hopefully by mid next year. Uh, but the thing is, like the the multiples right now are so high for 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 affiliate for ecom for everything else after COVID, that you know, you know we have to rethink. Like, is it is it better to take that money and reinvest in the sites and see if we can take rankings from a competition, or or is it better to you know build from scratch or acquire? Yeah, so it's 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 a, it's a difficult conundrum. No, that's a, that's a, it's a really interesting question. You know, I think at its most simple level. Businesses have two options to to grow. They either build or buy. Um, now you may do a combination of those two options, but there's still fundamentally two options. And I guess what I'm hearing from you, Ronnie, is that you know, like everything in life, it goes in cycles. So maybe at the moment, ecom businesses and sites are maybe a little bit on the pricey side because of that extra demand in the market. But uh, so, yeah. so you know, yeah, <laughs> it becomes it's it's an interesting question, right? That you're posing, Simon, because you know, I, I read this quote somewhere. It said it said like. So if if I know that stocks, let's take stocks example, and people keep saying stocks are an all-time high, right? And if I keep hearing every day that stocks are an all-time high, I'm not gonna invest in I'm not gonna invest in them. But if a dollar cost average everything, right, which is I put in the same amount of money every week and look at it for the next 10 years, then I then then who cares? Right? But like with 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 the website, you have to have that same sort of mentality as well. Like it's like if if you think this particular website is good enough in this particular geo, then why don't you dollar cost average it for the next like five ten years, and then see how what that comes out to? Like you know, most of our acquisitions have a five or ten year goal. We we don't usually buy websites just for one year, run them for one year, and then get rid of them. So it, we treat it like real estate. Like it's like it's real estate for the next ten years at least. That's a really interesting analogy there, Ronnie. I I, um, I heard a similar one about, oh, goodness, 10 years ago where a chap got up at a conference and said, you know, put your hand up if you think property here, like it was in Sydney, but put your hand up if you think property is expensive. And, and everyone put their hand up. It was like, yeah, I mean, property is expensive here. Okay, so put your hand up again if you wish you bought property 10 years ago. And, of course, pretty much everybody, you know, put their hand up saying they wish they bought more. And he said, I wonder if I come back in 10 years and I ask the same question, how many of you will put your hand up saying you wish you bought more property now, um, despite yeah. the fact that you think it's expensive? It's, um, so, so I guess, you know, I guess there's a lesson in there, right, for all of us. Yeah, it's super interesting. It's like you just have to, I mean, like I said, it's like you have to look at it for the next five. Most of my investments that I have locked in, and, and I'm very late to the game, by the way, is when I've locked it in today, I've locked it in for the next 10 years. Like I usually prefer like lock, like even for hedge funds or whatever, it's a locked investment. I'm like, I don't want to touch it. I'm young enough. I'll find a way to get around it. But, you know, just lock it in and I'm not going to touch, you know, there's no looking left or right. The market's going to go up and down. I don't, I, I you know, I, I don't want to be distracted by any, any market movements. Like in yeah, 10 so years, a bit I'll of take a, it out. Yeah, set and forget, you know, yep. do, do your homework on the fundamentals and then not worry about the day to day. Yeah, that that's because you're paying somebody to take care of it for you. Yeah, that makes sense. So, um, tell me about when you've you know you've done fifteen odd um, acquisitions now. Have you? I mean, there must be a sense of when you're going in, you start reviewing these things. Is there a sense of or concern of risk of things not failing, or or are you? Is your research process that tight that you just know once it hits certain metrics, you know, it's a winner? Well, no, I failed a few times. I've definitely failed more than a few times, and and uh, it's not like going to the casino that every every exercise that I've acquired has hit a home run. You know, you, you, I'm not that person. So uh, to to be fair, I've made you know a few bad decisions, and and usually they've come from the fact uh, it's it's happened because of like a Google a Google algorithm update. It's happened because some websites they've pumped a lot of uh, ne- uh, you know uh, black hat backlinks into it, and they look very good on paper. And the, the traffic looks amazing, but you know Google up uh, you know uh, updated its algorithm, and it, there's a there's a link update like a medic link update that happened last year. Anything else, and you can see something that had a million visitors come down to about three hundred thousand. You're like, holy hell, what just happened there? So yeah, yeah. Uh, you know we we will still acquire sites. We have to look at the link profile. We have, there, there's little things that nuances that I learned on the job that that uh, wasn't there before and of course you know if you have a broker if you have somebody to go through that whole process with you i think it helps 
what I didn't say, I thought I was I was the smartest guy in the room, and then I will go in and I will see how these things go. Now you hire, I hire consultants, and I said, look, how about I pay you, you know, five hundred or thousand dollars for your time, for an hour, or, you know, maybe five thousand dollars, whatever, just to to do the due diligence of it and come up to me with a proper proposal for it. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. Ha- having sold a few businesses in my time um, and certainly, you know, helping clients with that, one of the big things I know we look at um, when looking at value and looking at risks and all that sort of stuff is is concentration risk. So, you know, where, where a business has a really strong or too heavy a reliance on any one supplier, customer, or even employee. Um, I'm curious, Ronnie, what you just mentioned there with Google and how they can make a little change and sometimes, you know, either severely punish or sink a business even. Do, do, does that concern you or, you know, just, does, does, you know, a reliance on Google, does that, is that an impact in your business or are there ways to mitigate that? Uh, yeah, so you bring up a very interesting point, which is basically to say, like, even if, if we were to acquire, say, e-commerce businesses, in this day and age, the way we look at this business is how diversified is it? Like, how much percentage is coming from uh, Google ads? How much percentage is coming from SEO? How much percentage is coming through Facebook ads? How much percentage is coming from Amazon FBA, et cetera, et cetera? So what you're talking about is diversification. And when we look at diversification overall, uh, what I don't want to do is I don't want to have a business that's completely dependent on Google ads. And that's happened to me before in one of our businesses where our accounts got suspended. And then all of a sudden, I have, like, 10 people to feed and then you're like holy hell what do i do now and it's you know your your every your your livelihoods at stake um so diversification you bring up it's it's so it's so important like it's like not many people talk about it and why you should be diversifying but of course you you're looking at it from a different angle but yeah so uh when when we buy uh sites you know we always look at what is Oh, how much sales are they getting organically? How much how much sales are they getting in through, say, Google Ads? So I think your uh, diversification is the name of the game in this day and age. Yeah, that's that's fascinating stuff. Do, do you have a metric that that you or you know or a rule of thumb even that you use in guidance? So so for example, if you're looking at a new website mm-hmm. and they get a bunch of traffic from Google Ads and a bunch of traffic from other things, like. Uh, at what percentage, you know, of the overall revenue? So is there a percentage where, where your sort of a red flag goes up for you or there's a bit of a warning sign? You know, if, if somebody had 50% of their revenue coming from Google ads, I imagine that's probably a bit of an alarm bell. But is there a percentage sort of threshold that you start to go, okay, at this level or over this level, it's starting to become a problem? Mm, I would say I'm okay with 60%, even 65% of the revenue coming in from Google. Google. So Google wow, Ads okay. plus so Google Ads plus organic, that's fine. Uh, Amazon is a is a big flag for me, because, and I'll tell you okay. why. Because of Amazon fees. So Amazon, like I said, and the and the algo is just a race to the bottom. So if you think twenty percent of your sales come from Amazon, that's well and good. But your margins on Amazon are probably, if say you're a million dollar company, your margins on Amazon are probably at about eight to ten percent, depending on the industry you're in. Because the thing is, the the master of Amazon is not isn't going to be you, it's going to be the Chinese, it's going to be your supplier. Because your supplier at some point in time is going to undercut you and they're going to launch their own Amazon brand. Trust me on that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's happened. It's happened to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, I can imagine, yeah. Yeah. Facebook ads is another one. And the thing about Facebook ads is, now if you're a heavy line brand on Facebook ads, uh, your account can get suspended anytime. There's a lot of uh, stories out there about your Facebook ad account getting suspended. Second is when Facebook... <laughs> Uh, if you know your Facebook uh, algo update. Now, the interesting part is the iOS update that just rolled out earlier this year. I have seen people in the e-commerce business who were spending thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars a day on Facebook ads. Now they're crying. They're like, we can't even scale to like one thousand dollars a day. So all of a sudden, your business wow. has lost so much valuation just because of this one one minor update. I mean, it's not a minor update, but it, you know, it's everything that you worked uh, to to sell a business for the last five years has all gone down the drain now. Yeah, it's 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 really uh, this is such a critical point I think because you know I've had businesses in the past that were um, you know in the renewable energy space and they were so heavily impacted and driven by government policy and and incentives but but even take the incentives away flip flopping of government policy would massively change our business and it I must admit I came out of that experience well with some hard lessons learned. But almost a little bit petrified of having a business that's super dependent 
on an outside kind of platform or source, something that can just, they can make a decision today and change my business tomorrow. Um, it, it, it absolutely freaks me out. I mean, is that is that something that you just get used to dealing with? or You have to. You have to. It happens, man. It's like, uh, I'm better at it now. I mean, I can get some sleep, but I remember about two or three years ago, there was times that I couldn't sleep at night. It was just like, oh, when when's the next ban hammer coming? When's the next suspension coming? But then I realized <laughs> it's like, if I start focusing on these things, I won't be able to, you know, I won't be able to live my life. And I'm, you yeah. know, I was constantly in distress. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's like it's the nature of the business. You, uh, that that's why you need a Zappos. That's why you need a brand. That's why you need, you know, that uh, the 22, 23 times that people get to see a brand or call in and word of mouth versus uh you know the you know when you when when i talk about encompassing a brand it's like it's a custom service it's the the whole experience of people you know getting to know you and how that whole process works versus you know it's a fly-by-night dropship store where it's like hey i'm going to sell you these uh, fancy uh, bracelets or this fancy watch for 9.99 and then just disappear yeah yeah well i think too i mean like there's a whole another question here about um you know, how do you compete? And I mean, if you're just, if you've just got a Me Too product that you just source from somebody else and you're, you know, you're just flogging it online, well, I guess your only differentiation is price, right? Whereas, you know, it seems like what you're doing is you're building a brand and you're building, you know, you've got your own molds, you're doing different things. And, you know, it's more about building your products and brand and story. And and that obviously has value. Yeah, exactly. So you're, you're looking at, you're looking at, so what I call like in the e-commerce world is like your, your uh, amateur hour is basically when you're selling based on price and product, right? You're growing up when you, you are sort of building your your customer service team, but you know, you're getting to the you know the, the highest level is when you're actually building a brand. So you're actually looking at what is the voice of customer? How are you talking to your customer? Are you actually in retail stores? Or do people know about you from you know or uh, is the interaction does your interaction encompass customer service? You know interaction in the store, interaction online, like that online to offline experience. What does that look like? That's what, and that's the valuation that you want to give to a business, right? It's like I think I read somewhere that after fifty million dollars in revenue, the valuation of your business changes to one x of your gross revenue, especially in e-commerce, right? right before under fifty million dollars, it's it's like you know two three x of your net profit, but after fifty million, it becomes one x because after fifty million dollars, you kind of have an idea of how your brand is actually going to grow. Uh, because people, it becomes very pervasive and you have enough learnings to actually know what your online to offline and all these experiences that I've just mentioned uh, has been encapsulated. Well, and I imagine when you get to a size of 50 million turnover, I mean, the business is, is big enough, strong enough, stable enough to be able to consistently and reliably predict what's going to happen. Exactly. Um, which, which, you know, you take away risk for buyers and they're willing to pay more, right? Ronnie, one of the questions I've got, um, it's sort of, Always fascinated me, and I think I think it's something that a lot of our listeners will probably relate to, is is trying to get a sense of actually how much they should should be spending and budgeting for marketing, um, and I think digital businesses are probably far more aware of marketing spend and and uh, cost of acquisition and all that sort of stuff than, than a lot of traditional businesses. But, you know, you mentioned a client or you mentioned a company earlier that was spending 30 or 50 grand a month in uh, or, or a day, sorry, in, in advertising. Do, do you, when you think about your businesses, is there a percentage of revenue that you kind of, you know, roughly, is there a range maybe that you budget for, for advertising? Well, that's a funny question. I don't. And I'll tell you why. Okay. I mean, I, I wish I had a more fancy answer. I don't. Because the thing is, when when you have a certain situation where you see search volume, so COVID is a good example of it, right? If I had predicted, uh, let's say we have a million dollars a quarter in terms of, say, ad spends, right? But when COVID hit, all of a sudden, the trend volumes of everything uh, kept rising. So instead of spending a million dollars a quarter, we were spending a million and a half dollars a month. Because wow. it's like, it's, it's crazy. It's like, it'd be, and we were getting the same return on ad spend that we were if you were spending a million dollars a quarter. So the question then becomes is this is this is sort of a like it's it's an event that's happened that's out of your control, but that event is actually positively affecting you. So so for me to control that event was I went to every supplier that we had and we said, look, or, or every person we dealt with say, look, you'll have to take a a cut in terms of the fees or whatever we pay you, but because we didn't know how COVID's gonna play out, and most people did give us discounts. However, 
uh, it turned out to be very good for us in the long run. So we kept our costs much lower than expected because we were able to negotiate low costs. But, you know, and then COVID just, you know, hit, uh, it worked out well in the long run. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It, uh, that's really uh, an interesting approach. I mean, I, I mean, how do you, I, I guess things start moving. I mean, I think a lot of e-com businesses have talked about an uptick in sales. And what I'm hearing from you is that you saw that uptick and so you doubled down and invested more, a lot more in, in yeah. advertising. I mean, what kind of goes through your mind there? Because I, I imagine there'd be a lot of people that would be looking at that going, oh, wow, sales are up. Isn't that fantastic? Um, you know, maybe I don't even need to advertise as much because things are just going much better than they normally do. So I'm curious as to what goes through your mind or do you, you know, do you have a process that sort of guided you through that or yeah, how did you, how did you come to spending that much more money? Well, there's a couple of things I usually look at. So, so there's my end and I'll give you a friend's example as well. Uh, my end was basically like, if we, if we slowly increase the budgets week on week, and see if you're maintaining the same return on ad spend, or if it's that ad spend keeps going up, uh, if the if the cost per acquisition keeps keeps stable, and then we're still making the same amount of sales, then we're just gonna start pumping money into it, right? It's like a washing machine at the end of the day. Like it's like you you put the money in, you wash it out, and see you know what what it spits out. And if we continue doing that slowly but surely, then sure, why not? And then in some cases, uh, like my friend's case that I'm gonna give you an example of, his product was so much in demand that he cut all advertising. Like he he literally just removed all ad costs, literally everything, and his sales of his products still still kept going up. That's when TikTok took off. Wow. So he was actually on TikTok <laughs> and when on TikTok influencers before TikTok became huge. So his product was so well to do that he just needed to remove his, all his ad budget. He cut all his ad budget because he said, I can't keep up with the inventory. Like, you know, China's China's on a backlog. And and he says, I, I, I like it's a bad customer experience. But somehow, I mean, his company's crossed fifty million dollars in sales over the last nice. over the last twelve months, which is awesome for him, wow. right? So it's like a yeah, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm super proud of him. Yeah, so it's really nice to hear that. So in our case, it's a more of a measured approach. But in his case, it was like, look, it's happening. I'm going to cut ad costs, but people were so crazy about his product, they still wanted more. So it's yeah, yeah. it's great. I guess it's hard to predict sometimes, especially, you know, global pandemic, supply lines. Yeah. I mean, it, is, it can be a little bit hard. There's a lot of balls in the air, right, when you're trying to make decisions. Yeah, so exactly. So this is one of those situations where nobody could have predicted how COVID would have played out. But the, the thing I always say to uh, business owners and customers is you have to think about three things, right? You need to be able to think about a plan A, B, and C, which is basically like if something, if a, uh, if a let's say, COVID hadn't played out the way it did for e-commerce companies. In case a, a, a catastrophe happens or, or say Google suspends you, what is your plan A, which is you continue running the company at the same cost and everything else? What is your plan B? Like if Google suspends you today, then at what capacity should your company be running at? So we usually have a plan A, B, C, and our plan A is everything's same, everything's good, we'll keep our 40 employees, right? Plan B is Google suspends us. Then we have a skeleton crew. That that 40 with that 40 person company will go down to a 10-person company within a week, mm. right? Mm. And plan C would be essentially what, what are the basic SaaS software products that we need to keep the company running? So we go from an operating budget of, let's say, $2 million, we can shrink it down to like $250,000 within, I would say, one week. So we always have that in the back of a pocket. Yeah, scenario planning, basically, right? Like, have a think about yeah. the different options. What are the different potential outcomes? How do you respond? Yeah. I think that, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense and, and relates to pretty much everything in business, right? I mean, like, yeah. think about think about the potential outcomes and plan for them. Yeah. I'm, I'm, to be honest, I'm not a uh, finance guy. And for that, you know, there's there's the we have a we have a CFO we use and 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 he's he's the gentleman who actually does this for us. But but the person that I, uh, we have an EOS integrator uh, who we work with, which is an entrepreneurial operating system, which is basically teaches me how to rather it, it's it's made me a little more hands off uh, in my company, which, you know, it's basically like, you know, the team managers I have a management team that manages the businesses and I kind of look at it from a high level. So I get to work on the business, but not in the business every day. And from that perspective, that's, you know, this EOS integrator who I have is is extremely he has a finance background. He's actually helped me a lot in in terms of uh you know my changing my way of thinking of saying okay you know it's not always about you know uh, uh stressing out and worrying about these things you, you need you just plan this thing out and if 
things go wrong, I'm here. We, you know, in in one week, we'll be able to lay people off. Don't you worry about it. And I said, fantastic. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, you know, and that's the second time you've mentioned having good advisors and people around you who can support you. I, I just think that's a, that makes a lot of sense too. Ronnie, I, I've thoroughly enjoyed chatting to you and, and hearing your story and you've shared so many insights for our listeners. Um, I, I, I could talk to you all day, but I'm, I'm mindful that you probably have a life to get on with as well. But um, No, no, it's been my pleasure. <laughs> yeah, mate, are you okay for people to reach out and connect with you? Yeah, sure. You can always reach out to me on LinkedIn. Not asking for my phone number though. Uh, on LinkedIn, <laughs> yeah, thanks. On LinkedIn, uh, it's uh, my first name is Ronnie R O N N I E, and my last name is Teja T Tango E Echo J Jack A Alpha. Yeah, and you can just shoot awesome. me, shoot me an invite there. And and we will put a link to um, to your LinkedIn in the show notes. And and is there a website people can go and have a look at as well? Yes, my watch website is called Branzio C B R A N Z I O Branzio.com. That's how, that's where we sell our watches. Fabulous, fabulous. And as we always say on this show, if you do reach out to Ronnie, please put a little note in your connection request. Maybe let him know that you heard him on the Buy, Build, Sell podcast so he doesn't feel like you're one of those strange people at the bar. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> Ronnie. <laughs> nice one. I like that. <laughs> Mate, thank you so much for your time. I'm really grateful. I, I just think so many people will really enjoy this episode. It's, it's sort of a different it. perspective. You know, but no, thanks for having me on. It's, uh, you know, when when things open up, we have to meet somewhere in the middle, and the middle for us would be Hawaii. Yes, well, that's true. I haven't <laughs> been to Hawaii for a couple of years, but listen, I'm, I'm planning a trip to Vancouver when things open up, so, mate, you're on my list of people I must come and see. So, uh, mate, thank you Perfect. once again. I appreciate Really it. appreciate your time. Thanks, Simon. The ultimate freedom is to own a company that is valuable, scalable, and saleable. Find out how you score on the eight factors that drive company value by completing the Value Builder questionnaire. Upon completion, we will send through your business scorecard so you can see how to maximize the value of your company. Just go to exitadvisory.com.au forward slash scorecard. The Buy, Grow, Sell podcast is brought to you by Exit Advisory Group, a boutique M&A firm that helps business owners maximize company value and exit at the top of their game. To learn more about Exit Advisory Group, you can go to exitadvisory.com.au. And if you like what you've just heard, you can subscribe at buygrowsell.com to get a new episode delivered to your inbox each week. Thank you for listening to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast with Simon Bedard. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit buygrowsell.com forward slash episodes. Simon is the founder and CEO of Exit Advisory Group, and you can follow him on LinkedIn.